Welcome. My name is Simon. I am one of the pastors here at Grace Hills, and I want to welcome you to be here. That We're filling up. It's a good thing. It means Chris is getting closer, so we're excited that you're here to worship with us. <laughs> um, we are six days away from Christmas. As I keep telling my kids, we need to start shopping. So I'll remind all of you, please start shopping. All of your goods are on the water and boats right now. So if you're going to do Amazon, you're in trouble. <laughs> um, as I was thinking about this week and where we are, we, we've been in the book of Acts. We've been kind of pushing through Acts, watching the earlier church and what's going on. But we're going to take a break this week, and we're going to actually land on what we just talked about this morning, this idea of peace, this idea of shalom. And so we're going to focus on the fourth week of Advent and what that looks like. And as I was thinking about what can we use to help us understand what that looks like and um, maybe put it on perspective, there is a story that's come up, and I've shared it once before, not here, but it has to do with Christmas as well. It's a story that you might know if you paid attention in history class or if you were uh, a history buff, it, it took place about 107 years ago is when this took place. It was during World War I on Christmas Eve in 1914 at about 8.30 p.m., five months after the war broke out. Um, World War I was interesting in that it was very dirty and very grimy, and most wars are, but this one was a little bit different because it was trench warfare, so there was a lot of face-to-face, there was a lot of uh, weapons used that they normally didn't have access to now, so you were looking at the person in the eyes that you were trying to defeat, trying to kill, trying to stay alive from, and so we saw many lives lost during that time, but at 8.30, the trenches lit up. And then there was some communication happening from across the way. And it said, if you don't shoot, either will we. And with intrepidation, they started to come out of the trenches, all the different sides coming together. And they all went into no man's land. And if you're not familiar with that term is, it's the area that no one occupies, that everyone's fighting across. And so they entered this area where there would be all sorts of, nothing grows, everything's dead, it's been exploded away. And they start walking out. As they walk up to each other, what we find is they extend a hand to shake hands, that they start to talk about Christmas being tomorrow, that they start to sing Christmas songs in that moment, that they start to uh, have drink and share cigars, and they, they grab the food that they can, and they eat food. It says at one point, uh, a spontaneous soccer game started in the middle of no man's land where no one could once tread, and that poured over into the next day which was Christmas. And then after that, they were called back to their trenches. And the following day, they had to go back to war. It's interesting. There was peace and there was shalom there. The world was right in that moment. Even people who don't practice or believe in Jesus understand that there's something special about Christmas. Because that was the day when peace with God became a reality. It was the starting point that would culminate with Jesus dying in our place on Good Friday. See, these men knew what that day represented. The saving of the world. God putting an end to death, violence, and brokenness that plagues our planet. On that day, they, they wanted that thing that was broken that thing that was deep inside that was broken about all of us, all the way back from the Garden of Eden, it was broken. 
It was as if they were trying to create the very thing that Jesus did and promised to see what it would look like and be at peace with God and man, if only for a few hours. See, back in the garden, we had peace with God. We experienced the peace of God, and there was peace with each other. See, this is how we were designed to be. We, we were made to be with God, the giver of life, but we know what happened. Sin has destroyed that. Sin has separated us from God and bringing death to everyone and to everything on this planet. See, deep in us, we want that peace. Even those who try to conquer other countries are doing it, and they'll say, because we want peace. See, we know we want it. We just don't know how to get it. And so we try in all these different ways to find this peace in our life. And as we think about the word peace, it's a hard word to understand. And and the word that I want to use to help explain it today is the word that we mentioned earlier, which is the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom. Now, shalom is a very robust word. It's, it's a word that can be hard to understand. And, and some would say, well, peace, it's just the absence of violence. It's the absence of war. That's part of it, but that's not the whole thing. There's so much more behind it. It's, it's, it's belittling to say that shalom just means no violence. That's not what it was meant to be. It's more than that. So the word shalom would mean wholeness. Safety, completeness, prosperity, soundness, health. That's how that word is embodied. It's a reason why it's used as a greeting and a farewell. As you meet someone, you wish them shalom. As they leave, you wish them shalom, that their life would be complete, whole, not lacking the way it was designed to be. When we talk about the idea of shalom in the Bible, it's taking things that are broken and making them right again. It's not putting a Band-Aid on it. It's not a temporary fix. It's restoring it back to its original state, to its original glory. Now, you can learn a lot about people by what YouTube channels they watch, good and bad. Um, But my family mocks me all the time because I watch a a lot of weird things, but I love restoration uh, videos, whether that's here's an old watch that should be thrown away, or here's a hammer, or here's an axe, or here's this piece of machinery that just shouldn't exist anymore. And the guys spend all this time, they don't even talk, and they just go through it and they bring it back to glory. And I love the end because they use it. And then they can use it for what it was designed to be used for. And there's something about that that I think we all want. We understand that sin breaks things down, but what we see in the Bible is that God restores things. Genesis 3 is where the world became broken, and that state of wholeness, that state of being incomplete took place. It's kind of like a wall that has a lot of holes in it. Walls are meant to keep people out. They're meant to, to have a barrier between something. There's structural integrity that comes with walls, and the more holes that are in that wall, the less effective it becomes and the less structurally sound that it is. Our life is like that wall, and when sin came into it, those holes represent the brokenness of what our life looks like. Shalom is saying that that wall, our life, would be restored to the way that it was designed. And the Bible would say that as sin came to destroy everything, Jesus came to fix the wall of our life. And spoiler alert, 
It revolves around the person of Jesus. You're like, oh, I like, I like good endings. Sorry, there it is. There's the ending. Jesus is what happened. And we saw last week in our passage of Isaiah 9, 6, that that's where we were told that there would be a savior, there would be a prince of peace that would come and his reign would have no end. That's what we're talking about. And so here's what I want to do today. Uh, normally I say, oh, we got a few verses to get through. It's going to take a while. And you get nervous. And I say, it'll only take a minute. And you're like, you're a liar. So reality is this. I want to go through all of Ephesians chapter two. And you're like, oh no. Um, higher level. And then we'll zoom in and then we'll zoom out. But I just want to kind of walk through it. It's a little bit differently than how I normally do it. So what I do is I want to pray real quick. And then I want to jump into Ephesians two. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and jump in there. Oh. Jesus, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this people. I thank you for your message that saves. I thank you for the transforming power of your son, that you are the God who brings shalom. You are the God that brings peace. Lord, I ask that we open your word and explore it, that you would illuminate our eyes and ears and open our hearts to hearing the truth of who you are and what you've done. I ask that you would use me, Holy Spirit, in a way that would be effective to communicating your word to your people. If there's anything I shouldn't say, take it from my notes, my mind, my lips. If there's anything I should say, allow me to be a conduit of truth to speak to whoever is here today who needs to hear the power of the gospel in their own lives. I love you. pray this in your glorious name. Amen. Let's go ahead and start with verses 1 through 3 in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When we rejected God and we followed after our own desires, what we tend to find is that we didn't quite find the freedom that we wanted. We weren't as free as we'd hoped that we would have been. Because here's the problem. It was just replaced with a different ruler, a different ruler than God. And that's what's happened. That's the problem. It says that we followed the course of this world. Well, think about that. When there's a void in leadership, what happens? Well, no one leads. No someone always steps into the void where there is a lack of leadership. And what we see as we rebelled and rejected God, that void was quickly filled by who? By the world. And the world isn't going to remain neutral. The world's going to do what it thinks is best. So when I say the world, what I'm saying is the thoughts and hearts of men and women deciding what is what? Right and wrong. And suddenly we have a new distinction of what is right and wrong that is different than what is right and wrong in God's eyes. It tells us that we have a new ruler, the prince of the air, meaning that the same one that caused the rebellion of one-third of the angels before the creation of the world is now doing the same thing with God's creation again. You need to understand something about Satan, what his goal is. He wanted to be God. He thought that he should be God, and he couldn't be God. And because he knew that he couldn't defeat God, he said, well, I'm going to ruin everything that God's doing. 
And so what he started to do, he started early on with ruining relationships. The first one was with the relationship between God and the angels that rebelled against him. And that he is a destroyer of relationships. He does not want you to have a connectedness to God because he knows the truth that God is the one that gives life. That there is no way for living outside of being connected to God. And now what is he doing? The exact same thing that he was doing before, but instead of on the angels, he's working on us. God's creation, the ones that God loves, that he is going to create a brokenness in the relationship that we have with God. He is not your friend. He is the enemy. He doesn't want anything good for you. Even if you think good things are happening, he wants you to be separated from God because he knows that that'll hurt God the most. That's what he wants. And I'll tell you what, he's really good at it. And if you underestimate the enemy, you will fall into the same trap. It tells us that we were all dead in uh, this position, that where we were, what it looked like, that we were dead in our sin and our trespasses, following the desires of the flesh and following the desires of the mind. You say, well, Simon, we don't think that way anymore. We are a very sophisticated society, and we don't do that. And all I would tell you is this. Walk through Home Goods, Target, TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and everyone's like, wait, you're talking about the places that I love. My wife loves those places as well. And you can go down any aisle, and there'll be lots of words on lots of boards that you can look that would make your house look really snazzy. And they'll say something along the lines of this. Believe in yourself. Follow your dreams. Chase your arrow. The power is within you. See, we're saying the same thing. We're just making it very Pinteresty. That's all we're really doing. We're just dolling it up a little bit, aren't we? That's what we're talking about. This is chasing after that air. It says, no, this is what got us in the problem in the first place. We don't need to follow our mind, our heart, our desires. We need to follow God. God is the one who determines that. Well, if we keep going through Ephesians, we're going to get the solution. Ephesians 4 through 7 would say this. But God, by the way, Anytime you see that statement in the Bible, underline it because it always follows with the amazing things that God is going to do. Every time I see it, I just underline it, mark it, make a circle around it, whatever you got to do to see that. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up as with him and seated with us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show his immeasurable riches, <laughs> the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Um, right off the bat, God is the one who is accredited for the action of about what's going to happen, but God. So he's accredited with the action of the things that are going to take place. He is the one who has done the work. He is the one that actually holds the solution. He is the one who makes the first step. He is the one that initiates everything. It says, but God shows that he is rich in mercy. What is that? That's not getting what we deserve. And namely, for a group of people, us, myself included, that don't trust God, that reject God, that follow our own ways, that say, forget you, God, I can do it on my own. What we have accrued, what we have earned is his wrath, his punishment for rejecting the God of the universe, the creator of all things. See, we, we deserve that. But it says that he's got mercy. 
Well, what would drive God to have that mercy? Why would he do that? Why would he extend that when we don't, we don't deserve it? Well, it tells us his great love. And, and we could spend all day on just this one idea of God's great love and walk through the Bible over and over again and show his love for his people. But it's even more than that because it says right here, which he loved us, that his great love for us, for you, for me, for all of us. I talk to people all the time, I just don't feel like God loves me. I've got a verse. Underline it, circle it, highlight it, memorize it, do whatever you have to do because the world wants to tell you that God doesn't love you, but God is saying, I love you. I care for you. You're important. You are made in my image. You have worth and value because of that. Don't ever believe the lie that God doesn't love you because it tells us that he does. What's this love based on? Well, it must be based on because I'm a great guy. I mean, I'm a, I'm a super good guy. I go to church. I tithe at times. I pray sometimes. I mean, I, I've clearly followed the law to the, to the letter. Of the, I, I'm great. Well, no. That's not it at all. It doesn't, it doesn't say that at all in here, does it? As a matter of fact, it doesn't say it before that verse, and it doesn't say it in that verse. It actually says the opposite. It tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that we were disobedient, that he took spiritually dead people and made them alive through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the great rescuer. See, his name is Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. That is a title that is given to the one that would save the world. And then it tells us that this love that he loves us with, this mercy he's given us, that it's through grace, the grace of God, that which saves us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So not only do we not get what we deserve, he gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us his son. He gives us his perfect sacrifice of his son. He came to earth and lived a perfect life and never sinned once. Yet he then became the one that would take what we earned and deserved, our wrath, our punishment. And he went to the cross and died so we wouldn't have to. See, that's grace. He, we did our worst and he gave his best. That's who God is. That is his grace, his mercy, his love, his kindness that overflows from him all the time. And he wants the world to know this great mercy. He wants them to know this great love so that the generations that follow will see the immeasurable grace and kindness towards Christ that he says that we have in verse seven. He even goes a step further in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And I, I love this passage. It's a great passage. And you've probably heard it before. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. What is he saying? Like it has nothing to do with us. We don't have the ability to save ourselves. We can't make ourselves alive if we're dead. That's just a picture that we all understand. But he's saying that he is the one that does it. He showers with grace and mercy and kindness. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. That God will receive all the glory and praise. We don't get any. He gets all. All we can do is surrender to him and point to this great and amazing God and what he's done. That's what we get to do. That's the beauty of it, that no matter what, he will always receive all the glory and honor and praise. 
And there's a result that comes from it. There's a result in how we respond and what that looks like in us, which is really where we're landing today with the idea of peace and shalom. And it changes us. It makes us new and it makes us different. I want to start up in verse 13. I'm going to read through and we'll kind of jump in and out. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he became And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, I got through all of Ephesians 2 pretty quick. What's the result we're talking about? The result is the shalom that we spoke of earlier. Paul tells us to remember where we were and where we are now. See, it's really, this is an important thing that I think we forget about. The Apostle Paul does it all the time. He talks about his past, all of his brokenness, doesn't he? He keeps bringing it up over and over and over again. Well, there's a reason. He talks about where he was, but then he talks about what Christ has done in his life and where he is now. He's highlighting that God is a God that transforms and changes the hearts of men and women constantly through history. And by bringing up what God has done, we can praise him and give him glory because of where we are now in the position that we actually have. We need to understand that this is an important part about being a Christian. People ask me, like, you keep sharing all these, like, really bad stories about yourself. Yeah, I try because I'm not there anymore. Those are past tense. I'm not continuing in those. I'm a new creation. And that God is working on my heart, that he is changing me and developing me. And hopefully... I start looking a little bit more and more like Jesus every day. That's the hope. That's that's the goal that I'm striving for as God transforms my heart. It says in verse 13 that, that we were distant from God. That idea is that we're not close to him. We're not in relationship to him. We're not connected to him. But it says that the blood of Jesus brought us back to God. And now we have full access with him. Any time of day and always. Hebrews 416 would say it this way let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need that we can go to God any time of day you know what's great it's not promising that all of our problems will go away but what it is promising is that we have a place to go that extends grace and mercy through Jesus through our father like that's what we have hope in like can we just acknowledge the world is tough The world is hard. The world is broken. But yet we have the peace of God that resides in us that allows us to go through those moments when we shouldn't because we have the peace of God. That's that's what he's saying. 
See, the, sh- the shalom that we talk about, it was never meant to be a word or, or just an idea. Shalom has a name. It was, it was always meant to represent a person as we look at it. And his name is Jesus. It tells us in verse 14, it says, uh, for he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. You want to know where peace is? There it is. That's where it's from. The brokenness of our life, the brokenness of our wall is found in Jesus Christ. And we see that peace happens on a lot of different levels here. It happens with us and God. That's the greatest division, the greatest root of all the problems of the world. If you want to look at the world and everyone's got a, a solution to how to fix the world, the world needs to be fixed by doing this. If we could take care of the economy, if we could take care of this, if we had health care, if we had all these ideas, right? The reason there's war and fighting and death and pain and suffering and poverty and greed and oppression is because of sin, that it has fractured how everything functions. It is, it is the core of the brokenness of the entire world. And until that is solved, until that is taken care of, there will never be peace. God knows how the world works best. He designed it. He made it all. This love that we all want, this, this, I hear it all the time, there's a tension right now in the world. And everyone keeps talking, oh, if we just have this peace, if we just have this love, if we could just care about it, if we could put aside our differences, it only will come through Jesus Christ. You know why? Because he gives new hearts. We're trying to function out of old, broken hearts. And why would we expect righteousness from broken hearts. Until we have our new hearts from Christ, we will never be able to love and respond the way that Jesus did. We're never going to be able to. Until we have a new heart of flesh, we can't do that. It won't take place. It also happens with Jews and Gentiles. You're like, I'm not from church. I do not understand what you're talking about. Um, I make this statement all the time to my kids. I said, you know, the world is either all made of ice cream or it isn't. And they look at me like, wait, what? I'm like, it is. And they're like, that's a dumb statement. I'm like, it's true, though. In the Old Testament, there was two groups of people. There was the Jewish people, God's chosen people, his people that were meant to take the name of God to the nations and be an example to them, and everyone else. They're called Gentiles. That's you, that's me, unless you're Jewish. Like, that's who we are. That's the the world that we exist in, that there are two groups of people. And what it says is that through this, there was a hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles, God's chosen people and all these unclean, dirty people. And they could go to the temple, but they'd only go so far. And they had a sign that if you went too far, you could die. Like, they could kill you. Like, hey, that wall of hostility, that they would understand that saying, that statement. This is that Jesus went and tore down that wall of hostility, now allowing all of God's people to be in the same family. All of God's people to be connected, to be a part of who they were supposed to be. See, he brings peace to us on a personal, relational level. You and I can have this peace that we talk about in verse 19. That we're no longer strangers, we're no longer aliens, but we're citizens and fellow members together. 
And there's this beautiful picture. I'm not going to read it. In 1 Corinthians 12, you can read through what that looks like. And what I love is that God has endowed us with gifts and abilities to bring him glory. They're not meant to highlight who we are and our greatness and how wonderful we are. We're meant to use those gifts gifts collectively and that collectively we would give glory to God how he brings together people that have no right to be together but yet are connected by the blood of Jesus Christ using their gifts and abilities to point to how great our God and our King is. That's what we're meant to do. And that there's this bond that takes place that is stronger than the blood that comes from your parents. It's the blood that comes from God, the blood of Jesus Christ that is thicker than the blood of birth. And then it shows us in 20 through 22 that that we are a new temple of God. And as the temple was the dwelling place of God, the Holy of Holies, that's where God would be, and they'd go in there once a year to be with God, to be in his presence. It says that now we are the temples of God, that God resides in us. So as people used to have to travel from all over to go to the the temple, to have their sins forgiven, to have access to God, to to communicate with God, we don't, don't have to do that. We get to go out into the world now. And so now the temple spreads out all over the world through his people because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and the Holy Spirit is God, as we'll learn in two more weeks, that, that he is God, that he resides in us. Like, that's crazy. We are, like, God dwells in us. He, he's with us wherever we go. We are examples of who he is to every man, woman, and child that we come in contact with all the time, with all of our words, all of our thoughts, and all of our deeds. It's powerful. See, this, this shalom this restoration of, of God fixing the broken world. God fixing us. Because we know deep down that we're all broken, don't we? I mean, come on. If we're just being honest, late at night, you're laying in bed, and you replay everything that happened in your, in your day, don't you? And you think about all the words that were said that you can't take back. You think about all the actions that were done that you can't get rid of. And you go, I wish I would have done this. Oh, if I only responded that way. And what we do is we strive and we toil to try to be good, to try to be righteous, to try to do all the things that we think are going to be right that will make God happy, that will make us a good person that we can try to find this peace that we're looking for so desperately, but we can't find it. We know that we're broken. We know that we need something else. Romans 5, 5.1 would say, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace that we're looking for, God offers through his son. Um, I used to share a lot of movie stories, and I don't so much anymore, but I just felt like it was appropriate today. If you look at characters and character development and who they are, um, it's the, it, this is the very arc of the character of Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump, right? This was his arc. He, he, he had this brokenness and this disconnectedness with God, and he was trying to do it through honoring his name, doing what all of his forefathers had done, and when it didn't go the way he wanted, and he lost his legs, he was mad at who? 
God. He yelled and screamed at God, there is no God. He doesn't exist. He doesn't love me. Why would he let this happen to me? And there was this moment when he's on the boat and he's like on top of the crow's nest and he's like screaming at God. He's trying to fight God and he's not winning. When does he find peace with God? When he surrenders. It wasn't from fighting God because he couldn't fight God. He couldn't do it on his own. He had to come to a place where he actually surrendered, and he came to that point where he surrendered, even before he said, and I think Lieutenant Dan found peace with God at that time, and he swam off into this, in the calmness and the stillness of the peace of the water was represented how that scene was even written out. That was a part of the peace that he had from God. See, our peace with God does not come from fighting with God. It comes to surrendering with God. First Thessalonians 3.16. Oops, too far. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. This is the peace that we can have all the time with us through any circumstance that you're looking for. So we are at this time of year there seems to be a lot of reflection. I don't know what it is about the end of the year. Maybe it's just that calendar makes sense where you kind of replay the entire year. Anyone doing that right now, kind of thinking about their life, thinking about what's been going on, thinking about where they've been, thinking about um, what's been happening in the world? <clears throat> we see all the shortcomings and we see the fragility of the world and it seems that the world is spinning out of control and it can feel like there's no hope, right? Well, here's what I want to do. Knowing where we've been and knowing where we are is actually really important. And I was praying last night about this, and I'm like, God, I just feel like there's something missing from this sermon. I feel like there's something that's not there right now. I feel like there's something that needs to, we need to do something about this. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, God, understanding peace is understanding that you sent your son to die for us. The peace is the gospel, that it changes us, that it makes us new, that it, it, it makes us something different, that it, it brings peace where there's brokenness. It brings peace where there's disconnectedness. And what we see is Paul over and over again talks about where he was broken and how Christ saved him and the people would glorify God all the time. And so I'm gonna step out in faith because I believe that God asked me to do this. And so I'm gonna ask you to step out in faith and see what God would do for you. And what I would like you to do is if you experience any time this year the peace of God, maybe it was for the first time of coming to know him, maybe it was different areas in your life where there was a brokenness, an incompleteness, and you felt God bring wholeness back to that part of your life. That maybe there was an addiction, maybe there was a sin that was happening, maybe there was a disbelief that you had about God that, that really wasn't there. Maybe God had healed an area of your life that you didn't realize needed to be healed until later. And you can look at it and go, God did this thing in my life. Here's what I want you to do. And we're going to give some space for this. I just want you to stand up. And I want you to say, I experienced the peace of God in, and then just say that half sentence of what it was. And then just sit down, and I want to see and celebrate with you how God has brought peace. I'm going to step back, and I'll tell you what, I'll go first. Is that fair enough? How about I go first and break the ice? This year, I felt the peace of God through not being anxious about waiting where God was going to place me and my family as we were looking for a new job. 